Hello and welcome to the latest in our Deep Awake Dialogue series. My name is Richard Cox and I'm joined, as always, by Tim Freak. And today we're sitting down for a conversation with Alex Sakiris of the Skeptico podcast. So good afternoon to you, Tim, as you are in the UK, and good morning to you, Alex, in California. Hi. California. Yes. And uh, welcome. Glad to, glad to be here with the two of you. So, Alex, um, I first, I think, stumbled across Skeptico when I saw Tim had been interviewed on it a few years ago, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Tim's been interviewed on one of these shows. It must be like the Skeptical Inquirer or something like that. And <laughs> as I, um, I looked into it, I found out it's not that. What you've produced over the past decade is this series of interviews with the, the leading experts in research into psychical phenomenon and near-death experience, occasionally going into the UFO phenomenon. And um, yeah, it's an, for me, it's, um, if you want to know about particularly the psychical research and the near-death experience stuff, Skeptico is the best place I've found on the internet to go and get an education on that, to get a, the scope of it. And you, you also chose, as well as the, um, the experts in the field, to interview their critics. So um, I'd love to know if I could take you back 10 years plus a bit to prior to the starting point of this. What was the thing that inspired you to get going with this project? Well, you know, it's, it's funny. We were just chatting just a second ago before we started. You know, I've always felt a, a, a connection with Tim and his work because I think we, in a lot of ways, have tried to do the same thing. I always had, I think, a spiritual yearning, um, it, 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 although it was pretty much wrapped around an understanding or an attempt to understand how things work in the real world. So, you know, I was pretty much bouncing along doing normal kind of stuff, business guy, interested in success, interested in how I could achieve my goals. And at the same time, I had this idea that what I really want to do is understand some bigger, deeper questions. You know, who are we? Why are we here? And as I've said many times, I mean, when I finally got the opportunity to do that, and I felt like the opportunity for me was through this skeptico format where I could, you know, you can't call up Tim Freak and say, Tim, talk to me. But if you have a podcast, and then if you get a couple of good guests already in the, in the vault, you know, then you have a little bit of credibility and you can have these kind of conversations, which is a wonderful, wonderful trick to do, yeah. you know. So what I really was surprised, I guess, is that when I went on this journey, I thought, well, gee, this is what everyone wants to do. Everyone wants to understand who are we, why are we here? And I guess I'm still constantly surprised that more people aren't explicitly on that journey. I think we're all maybe on that journey and don't know it if, if we can. But, you know, explicitly, I was like, hey, give me the data, give me the information, and let me see what I can do with it. And that was the purpose of the show, is to interview really smart people who maybe had a little piece of the puzzle that could kind of help me figure out what's really going on. So it was, very, it was, a, it was a journey for you in that you, didn't, you weren't a hardcore believer in psychical research, say, to start, or psychical phenomenon or near-death experience. You had questions you wanted answering about it. Completely. And, you know, I mean, like you mentioned near-death experience, which I spent a lot of time on the show, 50 shows probably on near-death experience, and it interviewed 
probably most of the world's leading researchers, a lot of people don't understand, but there's real scientific research, hundreds, hundreds at this point of published peer-reviewed papers on it. Hey, I've never had a near-death experience. I don't even know anyone personally who's had a near-death experience. I just got into these questions and I said, oh, here's a situation that kind of cuts right to the heart of the question. Because if consciousness survives bodily death, then we're at a whole different point in terms of our understanding of what consciousness is. So from a scientific basis, let's see if we can get to that point first as just kind of a, a, a launching. What you're saying about the uh, near-death experience seems really, really important to me, Alex, and I feel very much the same, is that if th that's, that is such a big issue, the whole idea of what death is, which doesn't get looked at because it's, you're not allowed to really, it's too big a question to ask. And, and one of the things I've been trying to do with, as you know, with, with my new philosophy of emergent spirituality and all that is actually go, is there a way we can underpin that? I mean, I would, I, when we finish this interview, I want to get some names from these people that you've been interviewing on the near death experience, because it feels to me like if there's people who've discovered, look, there's, I mean, I know myself from my own research years ago, there's so many people have had these experiences and the people themselves are really moving and convincing that if, if we can find a, an understanding which underpins that rather than denies it, I agree with you completely, everything shifts. I can see exactly why you, you honed in on that because it just, it just opens up suddenly, everything's blasted wide open. Well, you know, even the way that you broke it down there, Tim, I think is, is interesting and it's similar to the way that I've broken it down because there's two parts of it. One is, does consciousness, as we understand it, survive bodily death? And that's a question that the near-death experience science has really honed in on and tried to get an answer to. And it is the scientific, if you will, question. You know, although when we talk about spirituality, we have this really blurring of the lines of scientific and, and all the rest of that. But I think it's the launching off point is also what I think you're alluding to, because if that is the case, then what do we do with these accounts that you're kind of referring to? We do have these thousands and thousands of spiritually transformative experiences that have come through in these near-death experiences. And up to now, we've set them off to the side and said, well, we can't really understand that because scientifically it doesn't make any sense. Well, what if it starts to become understandable from a scientific standpoint, at least in the sense that there's a reality to it, you know? Then I think we have to treat all those accounts differently. Yeah, I, I, I feel exactly the same. I think that's, it's, that's why it's so important. It, it's, it's for, I'm, I'm sure it's for you. I mean, it's frustrating to me as, as somebody who just is curious, is alive and curious. That's where I start from. I see the scientific impulse as essentially that, which is so beautiful. And yeah. a lot of the scientists I meet you know, in, in the conferences I will speak at are like that. But then it kind of goes through into this sort of mainstream culture where if things don't fit they just become diminished just just put aside re regarded as kind of uh inconsequential or or just reduced which obviously you know is what's happening with near-death experience oh it's just this the chemicals that do this or it's we find that it's just it's just it's just rather than actually that 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 curious wow there's human beings lots of them report this 
surely you know and it's that spirit which i think is so important to those areas of the culture which are willing to look at genuine experiences uh, without dismissing or reducing them you know that's something i learned from you several years ago that always uh struck me as just a beautiful way of kind of expressing that that desire to find the deeper spirituality and that's been one of my kind of go-to kind of ideas especially recently in terms of trying to understand the methodology that skeptico is all about and one is follow the data wherever it leads and the second which i don't know if we'll talk about today if it's really relevant but is look for the conspiracy there are players on the field that aren't what they seem to be and un identifying those players has become an important part of my process because that's just what I've uncovered uh, over the years. But the third part is find the deep spirituality. And I, I love the way you've encapsulated that, like when we spoke a couple of years ago, is it's not, it's, it is that, but it's not just that, you know? And I think that is, that is a tremendous way of kind of opening up to both, saying, okay, I get that, but I can use it as a way to kind of move forward without feeling I have to battle against this person. I can just kind of transcend it completely. And that's what I think is really the challenge with what we face in science, is understanding and appreciating what we have, but then finding the deep spirituality. And the deep spirituality is the not just part, I think. Yeah. Yeah. One little question, and I just want to, if that's all right to ask Richard here, I just wanted to know, one of the things I love about it is you called it Skeptico, which feels an inspired name for it. And I just wondered why you did that. Well, it's, it's, it's an awesome, awesome personal journey story, you know, because to be honest, 10 years ago when I started, I was just searching for a domain name like we all do uh, sooner or later if we're in media. So I'm searching for a domain name. I knew that this skeptical thing was something I wanted to investigate, perhaps counter to a certain extent because I saw what was going on and I wanted to open it up. So I, I have a, a, a Greek ethnic background, at least on half of my family. So I found skeptikos, the original Greek philosophers who had kind of had this philosophy. I looked no further than the first line of the Wikipedia entry, put down Skeptico, it came in, I was like, great, I'll go for it. <laughs> five years later, five years later, talk about synchronicity. I'm looking up, I said, you know what, I should understand who these people were and what they were about. And I look, and Tim and Richard, this, this line has stuck with me as, as so perfectly quintessential what I think it's all about. The philosophers, the skeptical philosophers were interested in inquiry to perpetuate doubt. <laughs> and I thought, isn't that the, the deep spirituality? Shouldn't we be perpetuating doubt? Because the opposite of doubt is certainty, right? I'm certain. I know this is true. I'm a skeptic. I know that can't happen. I'm a Christian. I know this is the way. There's no doubt in that. But if we keep asking the question, I think we perpetuate doubt. Richard, you have a little bit of the non-dual background. It's netty, 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 right? So it's like from the other tradition. There, there's a tradition in rigorous intellectual pursuit of doubt, 
I think that's just an awesome idea. One of the um, one of the choices you made uh, right from the get go, skeptical, was to include uh, not just the experts in the various fields, but also their critics and a group of people who would typically refer to themselves as skeptics and publish magazines like Skeptical Inquirer. And I think you've had um, well, I, I, a good few of the, the leading lights of that movement on the show, which I thought was right. a, a great um, decision to make, to, to include them. Um, because it really shows both halves of the coin, if they can be described as halves. Um, and to have like debates between, um, I remember uh, Rupert Sheldrake and uh, Dr. Richard in effect size, okay, so it gets into statistics. And with statistics, it's easy to bury the debate on the internet between in, in things like a file draw effect or something and argue, oh, well, was it really significant or was it that the, the numbers were crunched a certain way? And Skeptico allowed those um, debates to play out. But I wonder how you, like 10 years on, how you reflect upon that, um, whether it, you feel that some of the people in the, the traditionally skeptic movement are truly skeptics or are they more credulous for a certain worldview? whether you feel some of them are, are honest people who just are locked into a certain way of seeing the world, or whether you feel there's a, a, an amount of, as you were saying, conspiracy or dishonesty thrown into the mix, people looking after positions they hold. How, do, are, do you intend to continue having skeptics on the show in the future, and how, how do you view that whole thing? You know, it's funny because I just interviewed uh, Brian Dunning, the host of the very popular Skeptoid show, and uh, just interviewed him earlier this week, I think, for an upcoming episode. And, uh, you know, I think the, the direction of the show, at least in my mind, was I think the skeptical thing is over, and I've been saying it's over for several years. And after interviewing Brian, I can confirm it's over. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's no there there. And there's still some remnants of it, and there's still a small group. He has a huge following. He has a huge weekly following, but in terms of an intellectual uh, core to it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't exist. And I think you can feel that on the internet when you interact with people are still skeptical and still have these uh, very committed belief systems, whatever they may be, you know, there's no such thing as UFOs, there's no such thing as NDEs. You know, all psi phenomena are stage magic or, you know, whatever the, the wacky beliefs are. But I think the more and more people have moved to this thing of, have moved to pushing them to the side of saying, well, they're just another fringe group with these kind of strange beliefs that we'll tolerate to a certain extent, but we're not going to take very seriously. And, you know, Richard, back to the, the other part of your question, at the beginning, the skeptical movement and the skeptical community was much more prominent, had much more credibility, and I genuinely wondered whether there was anything to their argument. Mm. And what I found was that there really wasn't any substance to it, and that there wasn't really any strong scientific argument. And to your other point, you know, folks like Richard, Dr. Richard Wiseman are just so intriguing to me, so intriguing, because he's obviously a very, very smart guy. And you just got to wonder, you know, what he's, what he's doing, what game he's playing. Because like you mentioned the interview series that I did with him and Rupert Sheldrick, 
any honest, scientifically minded person, any might be a stretch, but just sees it as clear deception. Rupert himself says, how long is this guy going to persist in this deception? He's using the word deception. And I brought that up because, if you know, skeptical, I'm not afraid to kind of throw that stuff in people's face. And I said, here's what this guy is saying. He's saying, you're deceiving, you know. And it's, it's really remarkable. The, the, the core personality behind the whole skeptical thing, of course, if people remember, was a guy named, a guy named James Randi, hmm. who is close to the end of his life. Um, and, but his ethos that he drove into that culture that I think is still there is encapsulated in the title of the documentary that was done by him, An Honest Liar. Honest Liar. So his thing is like, hey, I'm going to lie to you, but it's in the purpose of promoting this idea that you should take. Well, I mean, (laughs) anyone who doesn't understand that that is the complete antithesis of science has kind of fallen into the the spell of of the skepticism thing or just the the cultural uh, thing that we have now where, you know, we have to have these positions and we have to defend them and all the rest of that. There's no such thing as an honest liar in science. And unfortunately, that is the ethos of the skeptical community. It's a a real, um, I find it, you know, it's another place where I, I want to, you know, (laughs) take a both and approach because I just see that the, you know, the, the, there's part of me that's really pleased when I see um, people like Randy, people like that going out and exposing charlatans who are, you know, doing fake healings, amassing fortunes, all that stuff. And in India, in the US, all over. Uh, all of that kind of sense, you know, in, in, in the same way that, for instance, I've, I found myself often, especially in the past when I was writing a lot about, about religion and why it felt so, so damaging, I just kind of felt like, well, People like Richard Dawkins were still, they were fighting the battles of the Enlightenment. Like they were still, you know, 200, 300 years ago, but they were still fighting that battle against um, irrational, mythical thinking and trying to bring in something which was rational. The problem, which I obviously share with you, Alex, is that that side of it's great. But then when it's applied with uncritically and then becomes itself a dogma, um, it, it turns into its opposite. So then it's no longer setting you free. It's actually stopping genuine inquiry because, oh, this person is a charlatan does not follow that all people are charlatans. That's complete nonsense. Obviously, everyone can see that. It's completely illogical. And, and I end up, I think the thing for me is I end up looking at people, say, like Richard or Dawkins or someone like that, and I think, don't you experience the magic of life? because it's so obvious to me and it's kind of obvious to, I think to everyone I know and just about everyone I meet. Now, obviously I know certain types of people. I meet certain types of people. So there's maybe a whole load of people who just never have that. But the most obvious thing about my life for me is yes, there's a very cause and effect side of it, which is mechanical and banal and relentless. And there's a truly strange and magical and meaningful side which has always been there and sometimes is so obvious, it's startling. And, and t- that somebody could 
not have that seems quite extraordinary to me. Well, you have to wonder, I agree. You have to wonder if they don't have that or if they have built, like we all do, kind of a, a worldview through a series of beliefs that don't allow us to move to that part of ourselves, if you yeah. will, and kind of get yeah. into space. Because, and there's some practical parts of that too. People are invested in it for financial reasons or if you're in academia and you've built a career on that. Or even, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this in, in, in your sphere and in your circles in terms of people who develop a career uh, writing books or, you know, going out on the circuit and then have a hard time moving in that space. And that's one thing I've, I've always appreciated about your work as well is that you've found the ability to kind of make some moves that I think a lot of folks don't have the ability to do, you know, so they get locked in. I mean, what, what's... What's Richard Dawkins gonna do now with with evolution? You know, he can't back off and say neo-Darwinism is really kind of a silly explanation for all we see. He can't. He's kind of backed into a corner. It feels to me that the one you know it kind of goes along with the thing you said about doubt. You know, one of the one of my descriptions of myself often when I'm talking is that I'm a devotee of doubt because doubt makes us conscious. You know, only when you've doubted an idea can you know whether it's your own otherwise it's just it's just enculturation only when you hold it up but you can still end up believing it or not or you or taking it for now or whatever but only doubt allows you to be conscious of what you of how you're seeing the world and and when there's lack of doubt there's that certainty you talked about um and it feels like one of the things which comes with that certainty that that's that mindset is what i think of as absolutism where one thing is taken as, as everything. And often it's one path of, of a polarity. So that, for instance, you know, I think what happens often with people who are skeptical about um, things like the Rand and all of those is they see the, the, the charlatanism, they know themselves how easy it is to deceive people. They're very good at deceiving people. That's their job as magicians. And they, then extrapolate to, oh, this is a fake, therefore it's all a fake. And likewise, on the other side, you get people who go, yeah, there's a magic to life, therefore it's all magic. <laughs> and it's the same kind of thing of, well, maybe, maybe it's, the, it's, the, it's all is the bit that's a mistake, which is why you want, you know, for people over on this side, um, I'm wanting to go, hey, be, be skeptical, doubt your experiences, doubt the experiences of others, just because you've just heard that the holy man has done these miracles doesn't mean it's actually true. There's a good chance that, that, that you'll find out that it's not true and blah, blah, blah. And then on the other side, it feels like I'm saying the opposite. I want to go, hey, just be open to the fact that there's much more to life than you, than you currently think. And that the reducing it all to deception is, is not good enough to explain our actual human experience. And, and then somehow it feels like if you can get both of those going, then there's a chance to begin to be genuinely curious about life as it actually is. Richard, did you want to jump in at all? Um, yeah, my, the thought that's going through my mind is, uh, I, I heard Dean Radin, the side researcher, I think it may be on your show, comment on this about how when he's contacted by people who claim they can do all sorts of wonderful things with size, um, he usually thinks, that they need to be referred to a psychotherapist, right? Because Psy is something that exists in his research in quite a small um, 
in quite a small bandwidth of being just above chance when people apply themselves to it. Um, so I think that you can have a skeptical movement that looks at things both ways and encompasses doubt of what the the faith healer is doing on stage and collecting a lot of money for when people are leaping out of wheelchairs and dancing around, uh, but it's not dismissive of what's going on in repeated studies in laboratories. Um, well, that's kind of tricky on a number of levels. I mean, one, the other thing that I've heard, uh, I've heard Dr. Dean Radin say, who I think is really a, a shining light in a lot of ways in terms of researching psi phenomena, which is his specialty over at IONS, but just more broadly trying to bring this scientific process, which is what really came out of me, came out of what I was hearing Tim say, you know, is process. What is your process? What is your process of balancing those two things, like Tim was talking about, of doubt and belief, you know? And the scientific process, I think, is a wonderful, wonderful gift that can be applied to that, and Dean Radin has done so. The other thing I've heard Dean Radin say is when he hears people say, uh, this is slightly different than what you said, Richard, but he gets emails and people say, how can I be psychic? How can I develop more of this? And he usually writes them back and says, let me tell you that I get 10 to 1 emails of people saying, how do I get rid of this psychic yeah. stuff? How do I get rid of this constant intrusion of these spiritual kind of, or, or spirit and spiritual kind of things? <clears throat> but it is problematic, isn't it? Because the, the, the faith healing stuff works. Clearly it works. You know, I'm often reminded of the Andrew Weil, Dr. Andrew Weil, Harvard-educated, probably one of the better-known complementary healers in the world, and actually has an interesting background with uh, Ram Das and uh, the whole LSD thing uh, with Timothy Leary as well, but that'll have to stay for another story. But... Andrew Weil says that when he was in medical school, one of his professors required them to go into the medical library and randomly go up to the shelf and pull off any major study and look for spontaneous healing. And he said, you will find it in every single study, and it will be buried in the case studies as placebo effect or whatever, but what it really is saying is we had a spontaneous healing that we can't explain. So the fact that some folks can facilitate that in some way we don't understand or increase the chances that that might happen, I don't think should be totally surprising to us once we get past, you know, like we're talking about the near-death experience, once we establish that the placebo effect suggests, not only suggests, it screams out, spontaneous healing is happening here, people, and we don't understand it. Then I think we have to be more open to what's happening in these other situations, and at the same time, be careful that we're, that we're not falling prey to some very human characteristics of you know, people are trying to make money. You're trying and, to... it, and it's worth just saying, isn't it, in this conversation, it feels to me, just because of where we've gone with it, is that the carefulness that you need to play in alternative areas or areas that seem alternative in our culture right now, you need to pay exactly the same 
care with things which are mainstream because when you you know if you go and see you privately go and see a doctor you you need to have the same sense of am mm. i just being span along here for a very expensive treatment that i don't really need or is this guy really looking out for me and knows what he's talking about and and so the the level of that needs to be no greater or no less than one would apply in any area of life yeah you just we just need to accept that there are naturally going to be people who are very genuine and very talented at what they do and there's going to be people who are predatory because that's the nature of life everywhere there's there's that's what's going on and we need to keep that openness with that carefulness and those two together feels like well that's in every area i mean i i work in as you know with with spiritual awakening and certainly that's true with that i just you know <laughs> it's just desperately need to get people to be careful and 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 inquire and skeptical and yet to remain open because you never know what you're going to find and if you keep those both going that feels like that feels like that's the key to to inquiry and one of the things you know we're talking about uh the scientific process that's come up a couple times in this and i i think that's a wonderful tool and a gift if you embrace it because that is really the goal of science in its purest sense is to is to recognize that we have these biases recognize that we have these blind spots and find a way to kind of maneuver around them so i think you can take the spirit of scientific inquiry and apply it to anything in terms of understanding what where you might be stuck, where you might have these blind spots, where you might have these belief systems that aren't validated. Yeah, I think what you did there is really important, which is to go, look, we associate, or often people who are scientists, associate the scientific method with examining, you know, having an hypothesis, testing it out in sensual reality to see if it's true. That's very, very valid. But once you get this idea, which was central to the conversation we had, Alex, the last time we spoke about my new book, Soul Story, which is you start seeing the psyche, the soul, the imagination as a reality, as a domain in its own right, a, dom a domain in which we exist all the time, a domain which we continue to exist after death once the body is gone. Once you see imagination, psyche, soul as real, not just a temporary kind of fizz on the top of the of the body then you can't apply that technique because it's not sensual it's not made of sensation it's made of images so you can no longer measure it in the sensual world you can measure the effects of it which is what psi research does and so forth but you can't measure it and so therefore what you need is to get the spirit of what scientific inquiry is which is that being willing to doubt and to question along with being open and then looking for what is the most reasonable explanation we can come up with for now of the phenomena we're actually experiencing. So for me, when I look at my psychic or experiences or strange experiences I've had throughout my life, what marks them out is actually narrative that they don't, that they occur within a story and that, that, that it's about the story of my life and then that happens and that's and so it's not even like a just an event in a random world to even to understand these phenomena i need to understand that there's a level of life which is governed by narrative not just my interpretation of it but actually the way life is itself forms into narrative which is one of the qualities of soul of imagination so that for me we need if the, the way forward which, which will open up i hope at some point 
for understanding magical experiences, the way intention can affect things, healing, the way that we're passing information to and fro each other, I suspect all the time on a, on a soul or psychic level, will open up once we investigate that realm in its own right. And to do that, we need, we need to think in quite different ways and we need to allow the possibility that it functions in a different way. I came up with this term narrativity to try and begin to give an idea of something that could be seen as a natural um, force, a natural uh, um, process, which actually affects the way that life plays out, but which is coming down. So rather than just all everything coming upwards from physics to biology to psyche, actually there's an influence coming down, which is what the whole of this is about. Does the influence come back the other way? And actually in our everyday experience, it obviously does. It's happening now. I'm intending to say something. My mouth is moving. It's coming in that direction. And it's only because we've got embedded in this very narrow reductionist philosophy that we don't see the obviousness, that it's constantly moving both ways. We, we, we know that. And when I'm now going to be quiet, I'm going to listen to you, and then it's going to come the other way. It's going to come through my sensations to my psyche. And then I'll say something, and it'll come from my psyche into the sensations and pass to you. So it feels like we need to return to the obviousness of our experience and take it more seriously. And then uh, we can actually see this experience we're having we're of mind, of imagination, of soul, in which all the meaning of our conversation exists in a whole new way. That, that leads me into, I really wanted to ask uh, both of you really, Alex, um, a term I've heard you use on skeptical a lot is phony baloney materialism, okay? Yeah. And I think you um, express a certain dislike for the way the philosophy of materialism, the idea that what truly exists is this blob of material that arrives out of a big bang, life and consciousness evolves out of the material and returns to it, and consciousness is a, 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 an illusionary byproduct of that. Um, I get the sense that you think this is uh, not a particularly good philosophy, and I wanted to inquiries do you feel yourself and tim that it's having a detrimental effect on the culture of the world we see around us well the second part of that is difficult because when we start talking about culture then we get into social political kind of things and, and those conversations are really much more trickier than the way they're being played out in the media and in particular among us on the internet. I mean, what are the alternatives? What is the, what is the alternative kind of uh, philosophical underpinning for our society that would really work other than materialism? I don't know, that's a tough question. It's a lot easier to approach it and say, as a, as a scientifically understandable, coherent, idea does it make sense no it's been falsified over and over and over again quantum physics a hundred years ago the observer effect falsifies <coughs> pardon me falsify falsifies materialism dean Radin, who you mentioned a while ago i thought has done a marvelously simple and profound experiment with the double slit experiment so i won't go into the details but anyone who knows quantum physics knows you shoot the photon beam, does it look like a particle or a wave? And then the observer effect back up almost 100 years ago when these guys were looking at it, 
They said, hey, when we observe it, it seems to act different than when we don't observe it. Can conscious, the, a conscious observer really be changing our physical world and is therefore consciousness somehow fundamental? Well, what they decided to do was just kind of step over that question because it was so profound and it was so unsettling that they said, gee, this changes everything. It sure seems to be happening that way. It sure seems like the observer effect is real, but let's just do shut up and calculate, which is to say, let's take all the other stuff we've learned from this and see if we can start building an iPhone. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but all our technology that we have, and sometimes people don't realize this. I mean, quantum physics is right there in the iPhone. It's right there in your iMac. It's right there in all this stuff. You know, those, so those laws, those formulas that they came up with work, but those, they also imply, suggest that it's an approximation of this greater post-materialistic world that is waiting for us out there. So, and you know, when we talked about uh, near-death experience, again, to me, near-death experience cuts right to the chase, right? So you can look at Dean Radin's double slit experiment, which I kind of glossed over there. So what he did is he actually set up with modern day equipment that experiment. And he had the photon beam, the separator, and then he put a meditator there. He said, I'm going to tell you when to meditate. Meditate on the photon beam. I'm going to tell you not to meditate on the photon beam. Let's see if there's a difference. There's a difference. He proved it, published it, replicated it, had other people replicated it, published in a scientific peer-reviewed journal. That's pretty solid proof. But so what, was, what was the difference, Alex? Well, the difference in the double slit experiment is when there's an observer the photon, uh, the photon beam either looks like a, 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 like a series of particles, yeah. like photon particles, or a wave. But what did the meditator do? What did, what, if, what, what did the fact that it was a meditator have? Do you mean because they weren't looking at it, they were just, think, I get you. So An just by, by, by observing it, but not, uh, but through their intention, as it were. It, so the, you're right. The original, um, understanding that uh, folks like uh, the, the Schrodinger and uh, who else, you know, the original, exactly, those guys back then. Niels Bohr. Exactly. So their original understanding from just observing the experiment was, it, it, we can all understand this. It seems like when we go to observe it, go to measure it, like you mentioned before, we yeah. get a different result. And that's the same with somebody not actually measuring it, but actually just meditating on it. Right. So he, he, took that, he took that measurement, that observer apart. So it's quite well understood or, or identified, you know, the observer effect. You'll hear people say that, the observer effect in quantum physics. And that's what they're talking about. When we observe, our measurement changes. And that is really troubling for science. Because as Richard, as you were alluding to before, I mean, the fundamental principle of science is that we can measure. If you tell a scientist you can't measure, then he doesn't have any science. I mean, that is science. Science is observing and measuring. And what we've kind of stepped past and just ignored and swept under the rug is we really can't measure. 
the observer effect says we really can't measure. Quantum, in, quantum entanglement says we really can't measure. We just kind of pretend like we can measure. We can kind of get kind of close. And so I thought it was really great that Dean Radin formalized that and said, okay, you know, there's been, we've swept all this observer effect stuff under the rug. Here, I'll run the experiment. There you go. It's out in the open. Fantastic. What was the question, Richard? What has happened with materialism? Was that right? But yeah, more on the, um, the implications of materialism. Oh, so yeah, back to the implications. I mean, you know, like one, pe one thing people, I guess, argue about at times is, is scientific materialism, materialism, that is the philosophy of materialism, the philosophy that everything is matter, the world is out there and we can measure it and it really exists. Does that do with consumerism, the kind of materialism that we see and we all kind of go, oh, that's so bad that we're so materialistic. Well, I mean, this is kind of more Tim's kind of territory and understanding how these philosophies kind of might overlap. I think it's pretty clear once you get into them that one is very synergistic with the other in terms of if everything is out there and our only goal is matter and you know amassing it and having it and owning it one does seem to kind of lead to another do you have any thoughts on that Tim? yeah i think you're right i think you know it's one of the themes which i started off soul story with is that it seems that materialism is a philosophy which leaves us uh in a very very bleak cosmos which is here for no reason. We're here for you know a couple of minutes, long enough to go ah, and then it's gone. And it's so. If that's our situation, then really you might as well enjoy yourself and amass what you can. If, on the other hand, something much more profound and much more interesting is happening, and values such as love and communion with nature and one and one's fellow human beings, if that becomes what's important, then. I think there's a natural enjoyment of materialism that everyone has, and there's nothing wrong with that, but some, there's something greater so that it doesn't become a priority. And I agree with you totally. I mean, I, I, in my book, The Mystery Experience, which is a few years now, and, and I think actually in two more books before that, I quoted a lot of the people we've just been talking about, Niels Bohr and Schrodinger and, and all of the early quantum physics physicists, which say it's 100 years ago. Who uh, I think it was I think it was Werner Heisenberg who just went look the whole idea of a material reality is completely finished we have no idea how we could even put those words together anymore it's just gone I mean we had um, uh, uh, um, Niels Bohr beautifully saying uh, you come down to everything is atoms but atoms are really poetry <laughs> and, and 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 you know and. And, and I wanted to have all of these quotes together. So I pulled them all in from all, and Einstein too, all of these people, threw them all in and just went, look, these are the people that created modern physics. And there's not a materialist amongst them. Yes. Every single one of them is going, materialism is finished. If I remember correctly, you have some really good quotes in Soul Story too from those same folks. And, you know, back to your point, Richard, earlier about, you know, the skeptical thing. I always remember interviewing this Harvard physicist and, and kind of a really bright guy, no question. His name is Dr. Sean Carroll. <laughs> and we were talking about just this. 
And I, I kind of mentioned, I said, I don't know how you can say that. You know, Dean Radin just did this experiment. Obviously, the observer effect is real. So he not only said, well, I don't believe that. He said, but no, Niels Bohr never said that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Schrodinger never said that. And I was just like, where this guy is a Harvard physicist. So I, I brought out the quotes after the show and I said, you know, the quotes that you're talking about and, and folks should go look those up for themselves, go Google them. But it's, it is exactly as you're saying, Tim, Tim, these people are talking in the most poetic ways that we've reached the limits of what we thought we understood about this physical reality. It just isn't there. So we have the, this huge gap between we can go read that, we can go investigate that, it is, cannot be interpreted any other way, and yet we have this really dominant paradigm that continues to be promoted and uh, really rigorously pushed that says, like my friend Sean Carroll said, no, that's not what he said. That's not, you're not, the words that you're reading on the page. Those yeah, it's, 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 I was, I, I, there was a, we have a program at, on, on the radio in England called In Our Time. It's a very good look at. I've heard it, yeah. Intellectual ideas, okay, you know. So, and they did one on Wolfgang Pauli. And so I thought well, that'd be interesting. Um, I've got a particular interest in him, of course, because uh, he was a mystic as well as a great physicist, and he was a good friend and wrote a book uh, and, uh, with Carl Jung. And it was fascinating because I thought having it, oh, no, they'll do. And they went through all of his physics, and it was fascinating, and they were incredibly complimentary about how important he was. And then finally, at the end, they went. Someone brought up the mysticism and the Carl Jung, and they went. And one of them went. Yes, we have to forgive him this. Oh. <laughs> and, and they all agreed that it was very strange that he got into these, there was obviously some quirk of personality which meant that he gone off on these rather strange kind of, rather than what obviously which was for him, which was this was absolutely central. And I, mean, and I, and I think these, these early quantum physicists, many of them uh, are, you know, it's not an accident that they're putting forward these ideas because they're also immersing themselves. These are intelligent, inquiring people. They're immersing themselves in the latest thing which is arriving, which is a lot of Indian mysticism is coming across and Taoism is coming across and all these influences which we now take for granted are beginning to seep into their culture. And they're listening to them. You know, Niels Bohr, when he creates his own uh, coat of arms, puts a yin-yang sign on. No, that's incredible. We have, certain, we, we have to wonder a little bit, though, and this also kind of ties back into your point, is the chicken and the egg thing. You know, I, I love the, my narrative for your story is I'm a hard-nosed scientist. I'm doing my best with the tools that I have, and I reach a profound dead end. And now I go looking for what, because I do have this sense of inquiry to perpetuate doubt. So now I go looking and that's my door to open me up to, oh, what's going on over here? What's going on over there? Because we don't know. We don't know if the Eastern mysticism drove that. What I like to think in my narrative is that dead end of inquiry led to what else could be happening here, could be true. Isn't it absolutely astonishing? We're talking about the magic of life. Isn't it, isn't it just astonishing that someone like Niels Bohr can, can come up with this incredible stuff about the wave and the particle and the effect of consciousness? So they're, you know, they're certainly interacting. So we can't see one as primary. We must see them together, that they exist together. 
And from that, developing his idea of complementarity, that everything has to be seen in this paradoxical way, and then reaches out, either inspired by originally or reaches back to this ancient Chinese image, which is about complementarity, in which there's a wave and a positive and a negative particle. And you just think, wow, that's incredible that he was able to go, look, every, you know, now we know every positive particle has a negative particle and it can be seen as a wave or a particle. And then just the level of narrative in that whole history, which is central to the history of modern physics, just blows me away. It's beautiful and, and intriguing and, and magic. Great. Alex, I'd like to, um, to start to wrap up by asking you um, one thing that intrigues me about you is that you've had the capacity to change your perspective over the years and embrace ideas that you initially struggled with or rejected um, uh, in line with the motto of Skeptico, which is follow the evidence wherever it leads. That's the... Okay, so what I'm, I'm wondering is what kind of reaction have you received from the listeners of Skeptical who have come on either from a place of being interested in psychical research or being resistant to it or any of the other subjects um, covered? Do you get, well, firstly, what, what, is, what do you think it is about you that's enabled you to have that flexibility of mind? And when you receive correspondence, do you receive correspondence that says, Thank you very much, Alex. I've changed my position on X, Y, Z subjects after listening to your show. Or do you receive a lot of correspondence that says, I'm now entrenched further in my views because of your show. I've listened and I'm more convinced than ever that all this stuff is bunk. Unsubscribe. <laughs> Unsubscribe. I, I guess I'm, I'm looking for some hope here from humanity that people are able to embrace that flexibility of mind and indeed follow the evidence wherever it leads. And we're not all just stuck forever in our prejudices and opinions can, can you help me with that alice can you tell me that's no. the case sorry no. <laughs> we, we are we are on a lonely path uh, uh, all of us here it, but that's okay you know i mean one of the wonderful things about skeptical for me is i did have uh one i didn't have any financial interest in it because i had kind of had that handle and that really freed me up in some tremendous ways and the way i always position the show is my journey shared with other people mm -hmm. so i didn't care where the journey went because it was my journey so over the years i've certainly pissed off a lot of people <laughs> and i could see it I, I could see it in the numbers you know well you piss off all the Christians and you piss off all the atheists and then, you know, you piss off half the UFO people and, you know, you don't have many people left. Fortunately, the show has found, you know, a base of people who are interested in perpetuating doubt, you know, like we were talking about before. But that is, unfortunately, a, a, a small minority. And to your point, I've come to understand and appreciate that some of that seems to be just wired in. You know, some people have a, a, just a more flexible worldview, almost naturally or organically. I don't know if it's organically, but it just seems some people, they get it. They're like, oh, wow, I found this out. I discovered this. 
Terrific. That means I can let go of these beliefs that I had and move forward, which is, you know, something I think Tim can relate to in his work because it's so much about that. And other people are like, no, 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 please don't take those beliefs away from me. And fundamentally, that's what it's about. And, and just coming at it from a skeptical way is to say, you know, if you butt up against something and sooner or later that science just keeps hitting you in the face, you butt up against that data, I feel a need to at some point say, well, I got to go with the data. And, you know, we haven't talked about the conspiracy thing, but, you know, that's also driven a lot of people away from kind of skeptical, but it's also brought other people in. So I guess it's a trade-off, but it's like you run against you run up against, like we were talking about, you know, the Sean Carroll or the Richard Wiseman or one of the early shows I did with Dean Radin and, you know, the, the debunkers. And you're like, there's something else going on here. And if I just approach this from a straight on, gosh, darn it, these skeptics sure don't seem to like this or that guy sure seems to be, it doesn't quite jive with what's really going on. And what else we know is going on in terms of, how the game is played in all these other ways, how the game is played in politics, how the game is played in business. And we can't really pretend, can we, that it's any different in science or that it's any Mm. different in commercialized spirituality, be that the church or be that a new age movement. We have to look for that angle. That's at least been my, you know, understanding. I think it was one of the shows you did on conspiracy that was on my mind then. I'll try and quote you as I recall you saying it, that you've gotten into the uh, the Psy thing and the near-death experience and become more comfortable of that, but were quite cynical about some of the conspiracies floating around in the alternative world. I think you researched the Kennedy assassination and then went as far as saying, yeah, okay, I can see there was more going on there than, than it's in the, the Warren Commission. But then you were very cynical about something like 9-11 saying anything dodgy going on there and then were won over by the evidence again that there was more going on than we ever got to know about. So, yeah, I think it's, um, it's that transition. But it's a question that I've um, continuously, I suppose, returned to in my... Because um, I think we all want to communicate and anyone who's into a, a slightly different idea finds an endless potential in the world around them to um, communicate with people who disagree with them. Um, so I think to to look at how to um, effectively do that and to because I'm aware that there are people who I would like to think of myself as someone who's open minded and goes with the evidence. But I'm aware that there are other people in different perspectives who think <laughs> I'm just a dogmatic stuck in my place, never going to move, um, locked down in his positions kind of a guy. So <laughs> to have a kind of self-reflection on that, I suppose. And uh, yeah, I suppose that's. Skeptico, um, I think, gives you an opportunity to, as you say, piss off people in, in numerous communities by not going along <laughs> with the, <laughs> the ideologies in them. Tim, do you have any thoughts on that, of the, um, how you find it with, with entrenchment in views and differing perspectives from, from your work? Yeah, I mean, I suppose a bit of both. I mean, my, when I was doing the Jesus Mysteries, and, and that was probably the most full-on confrontation of very very deeply held beliefs and i my sense was it depends depended on when well i think the truth is the people who didn't want to believe it didn't read the book they just looked at the cover and just went i'm not going to read that 
Um, so I didn't really think that, that, that people who don't, you know, but the people who were looking for a way out, who just felt like something's not right, is it? And they did look at the book and, and, and I used to get lots and lots of emails and I still do actually saying, thank you. You've set me free and I'm reading more than one book now. Um, and you know, and that and that was lovely. Often, uh, you know, and this is the this is the, you know when we talk about people changing their beliefs, it can sound like, you know, for all of us, one everyone wants to explain their experience. I hope uh, you know. So you, you've ended up with these beliefs because you think they're the best you found to explain your experience. So you know, when I put forward a new philosophy like I'm doing at the moment, it, it's whether it's to scientists or to spiritual people and I'm going, Hey, I'd like you to rethink some of your beliefs and see, and give this a chance and see if it's better. I see that they're, you know, they're wanting to come with everything they've got. Yeah. But how does that fit with this? And, and with this, and what about this I had? And, and what about you? Yeah, but hang on. And you have to go through that whole process. And when that's done, then there's a chance people can go, Oh, Oh, I can keep all the experiences I've had, but make more sense of them. Ah, and the same, I think, with Christianity. Once you're able to see, hmm. I can say, no, you keep all the experiences you've had, uh, just understand them in a deeper way and understand what's happened in a deeper way. And then, <laughs> but, the, but the pressure, you know, it's not, you know, the pressure is not just internal. It's not just like I'm holding on. It's one of the things which people would say to me often in their emails after this, you know, great joy would be, but none of my friends or family are talking to me anymore. Yeah, there's so much real, to pull apart that's, there. A huge, that's a huge thing. Mm. Yeah, and, and there's so much to pull apart there, but I want to pick on one thing you said, because I think part of the perpetuate doubt ethos demands that we take it even further. Like one of the things I've been very interested in is, so if you push on the Christian uh, narrative and at the same time you consider and open up to the mythicist kind of perspective, which we've done on the show and really dug into hardcore, pulling that apart, looking at the text and really trying to understand that. One has to at the same time balance that with the spiritually transformative experiences that consistently include Jesus, right? So as I said with the near-death experience when I kind of started this conversation, the launching off point is to say, okay, scientifically it really doesn't make sense to deny the near-death experience Research, it just doesn't. It's, it's well established. Consciousness survives death. Therefore, we can start looking at, in a scientific way, like people that have that experience, that near-death experience. Now, what do we do with Jesus? Because Jesus is there. And that, con that also lines up with so many transformative spiritual experiences that we've heard throughout time where Jesus is showing up. My only conclusion, working hypothesis, is that Christ consciousness, in some way we don't understand, is extremely real. We don't know what that is. We don't know how thought forms might form and have meaning and have significance and have greater significance. You know, a, a parallel to that is if you go look at Satan and Satan in the Bible. Right? So uh, Richard Smoley, the very good biblical uh, scholar and researcher, turned me on to this along with everyone else that go look for Satan in the original Old Testament documents. You won't find him initially. 
what you find are these stories that have a good and a bad God, a Yahweh that is both good and bad. And then you see a little turn at some point where they go, hey, this narrative isn't quite working for us here. Let's introduce this other guy and give him all the bad stuff. And that becomes Satan. But at the same time, do we want to deny the existence of that spiritual force that does seem to be cropping up again and again? So it raises this really, and I know we're wrapping up here, but this is kind of an interesting point that I'm at, is are these thought forms that are, we're really dealing with that then become something a lot more, a lot greater? And we can have almost no understanding of that, but it, 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 we have to search for something that makes the pieces fit back together. Because I think just saying there was no Jesus does to me may be true on a historical level, but on a whole different spiritual level is completely inadequate. Not just a little bit inadequate like, oh, you know, you have these nice beliefs and stuff like that. It's completely inadequate in explaining the experience that people have with some real spiritual energy that seems to be real in every respect that we can measure it. What I love about the Gnostics, um, really, Alex, is, is that I think the, that they, they had this right at the start because I think it was absolutely central to the philosophical understanding in the ancient world because, you know, it's not just with Jesus. For them, it would also be with Dionysus, with Osiris, with Isis, with, you know, all of these figures. And as it is now still in India where, you know, you can have the same experience through Krishna or Ram or Hanuman or any of these or the Buddhas and the many Buddhas. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And that's, again, about the reductionist mindset just goes, oh, it's just a myth. And why I think I was able to have a better reaction with people is because I've always had this both out, which is, look, it, it, historically, this can be true, but that doesn't mean that we dismiss it. The whole, my first book, The Jesus Mysteries, was dedicated to the Christ in you, even though it was saying there's no Jesus for that very reason, because actually, I still have a relationship with Jesus, actually, because there is, you know, what Jung called an archetype of the self is right there. What I, what I love about the, the myth that we have gone off into a different thing, but just to, cause you, to, to, to come back on to what you just said, what I love about the, the Gnostic mythicist perspective, which um, I had the pleasure of writing about, is that it actually allows that far more and, 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 and honors those experiences more. Because one of the great ironies for people who take it all literally is that if there was an historical Jesus, then probably the one you're seeing in your imagination wasn't the real one. You know, the guy that you have, mine is a really loving, wise kind of Buddha-like figure, but maybe the real one was a son of a bitch or a, a, a political troublemaker or was that, that stuff about, you know, fire and brimstone. Maybe he did a lot of that and it was a bit uncomfortable and I, I wouldn't really like him. And, and so what, if, you, if there was an historical Jesus, everyone has to face that the chances that their Jesus is the real Jesus are very, very, very small and probably they're wrong. But if, the, if you see it more as some, an archetype, a, a, an image through which you're connecting mm. with divinity, then it's exactly right that your Jesus is your Jesus. And it should be. And that you have this powerful experience through that particular vehicle. And I, I've met people at your um, workshops, Tim, over the years who um, had had that profound transcendent experience of an encounter with the figure of Jesus 
appearing as a vision or feeling like he was touching them or something and had run into uh, a conflict between their direct spiritual transformative experience and the um, intellectual position of the Christian church, which was dissatisfactory and found your work a way to reconcile that in a way that an atheist mythicist position could never do and would just never work because it doesn't explain the, the transcendent experience. Um, the other one is people not just encountering Jesus, but there's a psychological phenomenon of people believing themselves to be Jesus. And I think you had some correspondence with someone like that once, didn't you? If, uh, you'd alleviated someone off the sense of that they were Jesus Christ through yeah, reading yeah. your book and coming to a Gnostic yeah. understanding that this sense of Jesus, of being Jesus, was uh, they're contacting the Christ in you, the, the transcendent consciousness. Yeah, yeah. So people, so people do change. Um, and I'm sure your work is changing loads of people um, all the time, actually, Alex. I think, you know, but I do also think it is a, you know, there's a, there's a, I bought myself a t-shirt um, uh, in the summer because I loved it so much. It's a, it's a picture of um, uh, um, Sisyphus pushing a rock up the hill and it's got a quote underneath from uh, Pascal Camus from Camus and it just says it's from his book on Sisyphus and it just says we must imagine Sisyphus happy <laughs> and, and I, I just love that because it keeps me going every day I just think when I'm pushing that boulder up the hill thinking this is going to go on for the rest of my life isn't it this pushing this boulder up the hill and I just think one must imagine Sisyphus happy I'm happily pushing this boulder forever up this hill because that's what the evolutionary impulse demands of me and i willingly go along with it a life of service yeah really i think that's what it is yeah. well thank you very much gentlemen for your time today it's been a fascinating dialogue for me to take part in i hope people at home enjoy it too so tim thank you very much and alex thank you and hopefully we can have a chat again sometime thank you it was wonderful i just surely enjoyed it thanks <laughs>